Coming up on Tech Nation, the NPR math guy, Keith Devlin, tells us about finding Fibonacci, the quest to rediscover the forgotten mathematical genius who changed the world. He also tells us how he came to NPR. Then on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about the Qualcomm Tricorder XPRIZE. 300 teams, $10 million, and now there are winners. More importantly, we learn what it means for you and your health. It's more than just a futuristic device on Star Trek now. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. One out of every five fish that I eat, that Americans eat, has been illegally caught. Now, how can that be? I eat the most benign fish, not on any endangered list, and all from large, recognized companies or reputable local fishmongers. But where do they get their fish? And that starts the chain of distributors and suppliers, vendors and middlemen that all have to act fast because a fish is well a fish and something has to be done with it soon after it's caught. And if you package, deliver and supply fish, well, you have a very demanding supply chain indeed. It's a little like child labor or untenable working conditions. You can't tell by looking at a product what went into it. And you can't tell by looking at the fish on your plate how it got there. But this is a very small part of a very big story. Not so much about illegal fishing, but rather severe damage to the planet. And it all backs up to a few humans and the march of technology. New York Times journalist Ian Urbina writes about fish and the oceans when he writes about Palau versus the poachers. Palau is an island nation of 20,000 on a string of some 500-plus islands in the western Pacific. While they seem to have nothing, what they have in spades is sovereignty over a lot of ocean. And in 2015, Palau created a 200,000-square-mile marine sanctuary, free from fishing and drilling. That would be over five times the size of Texas. Such a sanctuary is meant to keep out the worst of modern fishing technology. The purse-seening boats, which surround huge schools of fish with nets which float on the surface and extend their weighted bottoms to the floor. Some nets are a mile around, and nothing escapes. With the improvements in net strength over the decades, trawlers can scrape the ocean floor, devastating it, while again netting everything available. No longer is fishing interrupted by the availability of ice to pack the haul, as commercial freezers below deck stand ready for days. And FADs, the fish aggregating devices, meant to draw fish for easy netting, these dot our oceans and are perfectly legal. But Urbina writes mostly about the poachers who come into Palau's sanctuary and what Palau has been able to do about it.
Palau has received the gift of a patrol boat from Australia, working with SkyTruth and others to utilize satellite tracking data. Which ships are where? Are they doing something they shouldn't? How can they be intercepted and checked? All this is supported from thousands of miles away. Data analysts from SkyTruth in the United States with the help of computer applications and big data from satellites. You fight fire with fire, and it seems you fight technology with technology. And if the poacher's fishing vessel is any example, being a poacher is no picnic. These are horrific working conditions, attracting people who have little to lose, and for that matter, little to gain, but few other options. Reading of the devastation of the oceans, much of which is outside any nation's jurisdiction, lends credence to the idea that technology can serve to create an ocean surveillance state. And why not? Mother Earth ought to have some personal rights of her own. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Keith Devlin, the NPR math guy, a mathematician at Stanford University, he's here today with Finding Fibonacci, the quest to rediscover the forgotten mathematical genius who changed the world. Then on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about what the Qualcomm Tricorder X Prize could mean to you and your health. You may not remember the word Fibonacci, but if you went to high school, you studied the Fibonacci sequence. NPR math guy Keith Devlin reminds us what that is. When you write down two ones, you add them together, it gives you two. Then you add the last two numbers in that list, which is one and two, gives you three. Then you add the next, the last two from that. Two and three is five. Uh, two and three is five. Three and five is eight. Eight and five is 13. I'm going to stop there because I'll make a fool of myself. <laughs> but the rule is you take the last two you've written down, add them together. That gives you the next one. And nearly 100% of high school students then go on to say, why would we ever have to learn such a thing? <laughs> There's lots of things we could add together. I'll make my, you know, my Smith's, um, you know, sequence. But it turns out it's an important sequence. It's an important sequence. It's mathematically very interesting. It's got all sorts of properties that are actually fascinating to do. It's a way of generating a whole lot of sort of high school level problems on arithmetic. In fact, the sequence was, was first looked at, as far as we know, back in the days of the early Indian mathematicians in the first 6th or 7th century that invented the modern number system, the sort of the 10 digits, including the zero, the rules for adding them together. And it was a very nice little problem for practicing adding 
using Hindu-Arabic arithmetic. We, we call it Hindu-Arabic arithmetic now because the Arab traders took it from the Indians and then sort of brought it into the Muslim empire as traders. And eventually this guy we now call Fibonacci got hold of it and used it as an example in, in his book that he wrote in the 13th century. But you're right, it's a very interesting sequence mathematically. There are lots of cute little problems you can do. You can get people to prove theorems about it, which is rather nice. So you can use it in many ways in the math class. You can use it in a, in a university math class when you think in terms of those theorems and proofs. But it also turns out to, to occur all over the natural world, particularly in the garden. You go out and start counting petals on flowers and leaves on plants and you start counting spirals on pine cones and spirals on pineapples. You find almost all the time you get those numbers 3, 5, 8, 13, 22, etc., the Fibonacci numbers. Nature loves the Fibonacci numbers. And I find from your book that Fibonacci didn't invent the sequence. Yeah, the joke is we're about to start talking about a book on about the man Fibonacci. Got nothing to do with the guy. The only connection is that one of hundreds and hundreds of problems he puts in this big 400-page 13th-century book, Libra Abaci, the Book of Calculation. Hundreds of problems. One of them, and it's a throwaway problem, it's a cutesy little problem, about a fictitious rabbit population. Actually, what Even then, they were multiplying. <laughs> they were, yeah, indeed they were, except they were adding. These were, these were the adding rabbits that does that. But um, even back then, he was writing his books to be read. I mean, one of the reasons I wrote my book was that I've done the same in my career. I've spent a lot of my career following Fibonacci's footsteps. So one of the things he does is he knows most of his exercises in his book, Libre really are dull. They're about changing currencies, weights and measures, areas of cloth that you're trading. What he was doing was, was providing people with the tools to carry out business in an efficient way. In fact, it was his work that gave rise to the modern financial and commercial world. So his book is full of these to me, dull examples about trades and so forth. I mean, now you would just pull out your iPhone and use an app to do that kind of thing. But to, to, to sort of lighten the load, every now and then he throws in a cute little problem. Uh, and this, this is sort of a neat little thing about a fictitious rabbit population. Uh, and it's really just to provide a little light relief from all of these heavy-duty examples. That was the only connection with the Fibonacci sequence. In fact, he doesn't even call it... He doesn't call it anything. He just says... When he does the work for a solution, he says, these are the numbers you get. These are the, the, the monthly populations of this rabbit, of this rabbit colony. Um, that one little throwaway problem attached his name eventually in the 19th century, uh, a, a mathematician, another a French mathematician, who knew about this sequence, said, hey, this was an example in Leonardo Fibonacci's book. I'll call it the Fibonacci sequence. And from then on... Paul Fibonacci, for Leonardo of Pisa, to give him his correct name, has had to turn over in his grave every time he reads this. He must be sort of hitting himself on the forehead and saying, I helped create the modern financial world. And all these guys did, they didn't give me a T-shirt, they gave me a T-shirt with the Fibonacci sequence on it. Yes. I mean, he, he, he would be a terrible... I, I, Whatever I'm remembered for, I hope it's not some silly little sequence that I put as an example in one of my many books. Well, it's interesting to think about the fact that this goes back to 
1200 AD. Mm -hmm. And in Pisa, and many, many people have visited Pisa since multiple times, never thinking of the Fibonacci sequence, but now forevermore ingrained (laughs) in my memory. uh, I will certainly look at whatever I can look at now in Pisa having to do with Fibonacci. Well, I'll tell you what, even the people at Pisa, one of the stories I tell in this book, Finding Fibonacci, was when I tried to find his statue and I couldn't find it. I went into the tourist information office in the centre of Pisa, right next to the Leaning Tower in the, in the Piazza de Miracoli, the main square there. And I went up and said, I'm trying to find this statue of Leonardo Fibonacci. And she says, oh, Leonardo? No, you mean Leonardo da Vinci? I said, no, 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 not Leonardo da Vinci. He was Pisa, but a couple of hundred years later. Leonardo of Pisa, she said in, in her English, there is no Leonardo of Pisa. It's Leonardo da Vinci. No Leonardo of Pisa. It turned out that that statue was about 40 metres away from her desk. Uh, <laughs> the tourist lady. In the tourist lady. <laughs> Clearly, I was the first person that had gone asking for the statue of Leonardo of Pisa. Not a lot of mathematicians showing up in Pisa <laughs> so looking for fellow mathematicians and their heritage. Um, but I, I keep going back to what was Pisa like in 1200 AD? When, yeah. What was it like? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that actually was a secret to writing this book. When I got interested in writing, as I say, I got interested in writing a, a history of Leonardo because my own career, I was, I'd been spending a lot of my career following in his footsteps. He, he was the giant whose, whose footsteps I was treading. So I was very interested in finding out who was this mathematician that was a very competent mathematician. In fact, for his day in the 13th century, he was one of the best mathematicians around by a long way. But he put an enormous amount of effort into writing books to be read by people. Uh, and so... When I started to look before the printing press, we this was this was all, all handwritten manuscripts, and so when I started to write, I said, "Well, someone must have written a history." Nobody had written a history, so eventually, I, I, you know, I got to use my network, and I said, "Why has nobody written this?" Well, this, this, the reason why no one's written a history is there's really nothing known about the guy. I mean, there's just no information. There's, you, there's nothing to base a book on. So the historians had never written a book about him, the people who write histories of mathematics, history of science. But I said to myself, hey, this guy wrote six or seven massive books. Well, two or three of them massive, but perhaps a few other ones. So he's left behind an enormous amount of written material. Can't we get inside his head through what he's written? You know, you can get inside a musician's head by listening to their music. You can form an image of a musician by, you know, you, you can know the difference between Stockhausen and Beethoven just by listening to the kind of music. So can we find out about Leonardo through his mathematical writings? A historian couldn't, but a mathematician probably could. That was one of the tricks was to say, I'll try and recreate an image of, meth- of Leonardo that is faithful to his mathematics, which is the most important thing about him. The other part of the story was... The context. This is Pisa. Could I, by going to Pisa and just walking around and being there and breathing the air, could I get a sense of what it must have been like in the 13th century so that I've got the mathematics and where he was writing it? Well, the nice thing about Italy is they don't knock their old buildings down. You go to Pisa now and many of the buildings you see, including the famous ones in the Piazza di Miracoli, uh, I mean, the Leaning Tower was built while he was alive. Those are buildings that were there then. A lot of Pisa looks now like it did in the 13th century. You, By walking around, you can see buildings, one of which he may have lived in. Many of those buildings are still there, as they were. So by walking around, um, writing notes, thinking about the words I'd read that he'd written, his mathematical writings, and a few tiny little bibliographic details he'd put in almost as footnotes in his books, I was able to create in my mind... An image of Leonardo 
from the perspective of the 21st, actually the 20th century when I was doing this research, from the point of view of a 20th century mathematician. But since Leonardo's importance is the legacy he left us, for sure my account of him isn't accurate in any personal details, except for a few minor ones. But in terms of who is he in terms of his impact on the world and his legacy, I feel pretty confident that the story I tell is a good representation. It's a recreation. It's, it's not an artist's recreation. It's a mathematician's recreation. Um, so just as we have a statue of Leonardo, which was, was created in the 19th century, it was commissioned in the 19th century after he'd been rediscovered, as it were, and so we have a physical image of Leonardo that's an artist reconception, an artist conceptualization. Which is probably yeah. the kidna yeah. in the stables next door. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're going to make decent Leonardo. Yeah. Get over here. Yeah. So we now have this, this conception of, uh, of Leonardo through his writings. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. My guest today is Keith Devlin. You know him best as the NPR math guy. Keith is a mathematician at Stanford University and co-founder and president of BrainQuake, focused on creating mathematics, learning video games. He's written many books, and today he's here with his latest, Finding Fibonacci, the quest to rediscover the forgotten mathematical genius who changed the world. Well, it's interesting because you were saying, well, you know, the Hindu, Arabic, num- those are the numbers that we all know, Absolutely. that we live with yeah. every day. Yeah. But he, in fact, left Pisa, and that's where he happened to learn those numbers. That's correct. Yeah. He, so he, Leonardo grows up uh, in Pisa, which then was one of the world capitals of international commerce. International commerce back in the late 12th, 13th century was really around the Mediterranean. That was the, the, the sort of the Western civilized world. And the, the, and, and, and the traders in Pisa and Florence... Uh, now, we don't think of Pisa and Florence as ports today because they're inland, but these are the days of Mediterranean craft, and the Mediterranean craft would come into Livorno on the Mediterranean coast. The, the river Arno was, was, was accessible to flat-bottomed boats, so by using flat-bottomed boats to go from the Mediterranean port in Livorno, which was then called the Porto Pisano, the port of Pisa, the, the, the traders in Florence and Pisa started doing massive amounts of trading with the Muslim traders in North Africa. And they were taking goods up and down the Silk Route, so you had goods produced and consumed in the Orient. You had the the Arabic, Persian-speaking traders going up and down the Silk Route, bringing not only goods, but arithmetic and algebra up from India into North Africa. Leonardo then grows up in an Italian city that's all about commerce. His father was a, was a leading industrialist in, and, and, and a leading commercial person, a leading trader, uh, and sort of a politician, uh, a sort of a, you know a general good man around town in Pisa. Um, when when Leonardo's growing up, uh, he learns about arithmetic. He has he has ability in arithmetic. His father recognizes that his son is good with numbers. There was not really no mathematics then, except a bit of arithmetic, little bits of algebra, little bits of geometry. It was very elementary stuff. But whatever there was, Leonardo was good at it. His father goes to Bougia to represent the, the Pisan traders at the northern end of this, this trading route. Uh, shortly after he goes there, he, he asks for his son to join him. Uh, we surmise, at least I surmise, that he did that for two reasons. One, he wanted his son to take over or follow in his footsteps, which meant he had to learn Arabic, so he would bring him over to learn Arabic. And he also knew that his son was good with arithmetic, and what better way to have someone to help you with your calculations than to have your own son. So he almost certainly, for two reasons, brought his son out there. And that was where the big revelation took place. 
Leonardo goes into the the cafes on the ocean, on the on the, on the Mediterranean shore, which is where all the trading was done, and he sees something that hundreds of other people must have seen, and not thought about, and he does. Leonardo does something different. He watches these people do their calculations, in a way that was alien to him, because trading wasn't done by writing calculation in Italy. Trading wasn't done that way. If you were doing business in Italy, you did your calculations one of two ways. You used your fingers. They had a system of finger arithmetic that was good for numbers up to 10,000. This wasn't just counting in tens. This was all the way up to 10,000. Very intricate system. You were essentially using your fingers as an abacus, but you, and you had to learn it, which meant most people didn't. They hired someone who'd learned it. So you had to pay someone to do your arithmetic. That was one way. The other way was to use an abacus board. Now, we think of the abacus itself today as a device with wires and beads on wires in a frame. That actually came out of China. A whole different heritage. The the European abacus and the the, um, the Arabic world abacus was a board with lines drawn on it, drawn on it, and then you move pebbles around. Same idea as a wire abacus. It's just there's no wires, so you're moving pebbles on a board. Again, you had to learn the rules. You you had groups of ten and everything, um, but it was mechanical. The nice thing about the abacus board is. Uh, and even the finger arithmetic, although it was intricate, was you don't have to understand what you're doing. You just have to learn the rules for moving them around. And then what they did was they did their calculations and then they would write down the answers on paper using Roman numerals. Uh, the system in use then was Roman numerals. Um, it's trivial for addition and subtraction. Multiplication and division, which is what commerce is all about, you know, exchange rates and weights and measures and things, are really difficult. So they had two systems. They had a system for recording the answers Roman numerals, and they had essentially the abacus board or finger arithmetic for doing trading. It was mostly the abacus board. couple of problems with that. One is, if you're in a negotiation and the person you're negotiating with says, I think you made a mistake at step three, <laughs> there's no record of step three. You have to clear the board and start again. You can imagine the arguments going on and on, disagreeing. But think of doing the same calculation in Hindu-Arabic arithmetic, the modern arithmetic, it leaves an audit trail. You've got the whole calculation. You don't have to start again. You just work your way back until you find the mistake, you correct it. So it leaves an audit trail. That means trading essentially carries its own legal stamp because the calculation attests its own correctness. The second value of that is it means the person whose money it is doesn't have to be there. You could have someone sitting in an office in Pisa controlling a trading empire other people do the calculations. The rule would have to be the people doing the actual trading have to return the calculations on the paper so that person can perform an audit on the calculations. So Hindu-Arabic arithmetic is not only efficient, it's efficient because, again, you just have to learn the rules. You know, almost none of us learn arithmetic in school when, by understanding it. We learn by following the rules and then eventually... Uh, we do understand it, or some of us eventually understand it, not everybody. But you can just learn the rules, you can do it, it's accurate, it leaves an audit trail, and it's scalable. You can just ship these pieces of paper everywhere. And he sees that, and he's the first person, and this is one of these things about the great people are not necessarily the people who, who do the invention, they're the ones who recognise the power in the invention. He looks at this and says, and we know from looking at his later writings, at some point, maybe then, maybe a little bit later, says, this is going to change the world. And we know he must have thought that because he then spent many years writing this enormous book, Libra Bacci, which was a manual in using that system. 
it was absolutely enormous. He wasn't going to make money. You know, people didn't have Reuters or anything then. This was change the world stuff. He wanted to give the world this invention. And it was an invention that would change everything. And it did. Now, lots of people know you as the NPR math guy. But until I read the beginning of your book... I never knew how you became the NPR math guy. <laughs> Tell us that story. I think it's like everything else in the media. It was an accident. A guy walks into a studio and it sort of works. Yeah, uh, I'd been in Germany for a few years doing some research. I went back to the UK and I subscribed to the Manchester Guardian and started reading that. And, uh, and the Guardian then, and, and still... Uh, had a very strong reputation for writing good science articles. They had some very good science writers. Um, And yet, even though they had award-winning science writers, whenever one of those science writers tried to write a story on mathematics, it was terrible. You know, even if they've got a physics background, mathematics is hard to write about. It's not the same. You can't do. You can't pull the physicist trick of billiard balls and sort of the uh, solar system and these 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 visual metaphors. Mathematicians have visual metaphors, but they're abstract visual metaphors. So they were making a terrible job of these. Uh, I wasn't going to write to the, one of these journalists and say you're you're, you're making a bad you know, you're making a bad job of this because you know he's just going to ignore me. Of course, is. Uh, but I did sort of think, well, I, I, can I get in on this act and sort of provide some of these things? So I wrote an article just on spec, a little six or seven hundred page article, sent it into the Guardian Science, the Guardian Science Editor. Didn't hear anything for a few days. Then I got a phone call. In my, I was in my office at Lancaster University and he said, you sent in that story. I said, I said well... Yes, I apologise. He, <laughs> he said, did you enjoy the process of writing? You know, so I'm thinking, I can see where this is going to go. I said, yeah, I did. He said, well, two things. He says, this piece is not publishable, but you've got a wonderful style, you've got a nice touch to it, and you convey the idea in a way that brings it alive. If you want to do it, I'll help you. You can start writing for me. I'll give you advice, I'll give you feedback, and we'll sort of bring you along. He invites me to write another article. The Guardian publishes it with almost no changes. It was they didn't edit it very much. Uh, within a day, they, they, I get the phone call from the BBC. BBC Television wants to do a cover piece on that one with their children's programmes and things. And I get other invitations from people. So it, it, this immediately took off. The Guardian was going to start a whole new computer page. They said, "Wouldn't it be nice to have a math column?" So they phoned me and said, "Could you produce one of these articles every two weeks?" And you know, I just said, "In my won't, yes." And then put the phone down and thought, what have I just committed to? <laughs> yeah. Turned out to be very easy to do that. I'd been spent all my career saying mathematics is useful. Well, now it was on the line. I had every two weeks, I had to show people how it was useful with different interesting examples. It's doable. Um, it was when that sort of bandwagon began that I realised, OK, it's something that I do naturally and the world seems to like it. And from then on, I've always known that that was a second career. Uh, it was only later when I discovered I was following in the footsteps of Leonardo of Pisa, 800 years earlier, <laughs> who'd done essentially the same thing. Right, but how did you make your way to NPR? Eventually, in 87, when I come to the United States, um, one of the first things that happened was the Mathematical Association of America sort of gets me to be an editor of their, 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 their news magazine, uh, Focus, so I became the editor of that. And then 1994, Andrew Wiles, a fellow expat Brit, solves Fermat's last theorem. That's right. Incredibly difficult proof. Within a few days, I get a phone call from uh, the, the then producer of Weekend Edition. It was Ken Holm at the time, saying, we want to do a piece on this. We, we, we asked the math community in Washington at the Mathematical Association of America, and they said, this guy Devlin's probably your person. Um, and I'd done little bits of radio for the BBC, and so I, was, I wasn't a stranger to a studio and a microphone. Um, so they want me to do this piece on, on Fermat's last theorem. 
And this was actually a little bit later after he'd solved it because he solved it, then he found a mistake. This was when he patched up the mistake years later, a year later that I was doing this piece. So this was meant to be a deep story about the what was wrong with the first proof and so forth. So I actually go into which studio? I might have even come into this studio to record that one. Sure. Uh, subsequently, I started recording them at Stanford, but I, I think I came into this very studio here at KQED and, and recorded this piece with Scott Simon on... Uh, on Andrew Wiles and Fermat's Last Theorem. I'm speaking with mathematician Keith Devlin, the author of Finding Fibonacci, the quest to rediscover the forgotten mathematical genius who changed the world. We'll finish this story after a break. of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about the awarding of the $10 million Qualcomm Tricorder X Prize. Star Trek isn't so futuristic anymore. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with Keith Devlin, the NPR math guy. He's telling us about his first appearance on NPR. The producer said, well, and I've never met him, so we, and I wasn't meeting him then. This was all over, over a phone line. Um, the producer said, well, we're going to record for about 25 minutes and we'll pick the best four or five minutes. Like, okay, fine. Um, so we record for 25 minutes and Scott and I had never met we just hit it off through our voices. This is Scott I mean, Simon. Was, Scott Simon, yeah, Scott Simon and I. We literally just hit it off. Uh, we got into a fun conversation. I mean, Scott's a professional. He's been doing this all. He's a wonderful professional. But people thought it was just two guys chewing the fat in a pub. And it really does sound like that. We're just chatting about this. And yet we're chatting about one of the most difficult mathematical proofs of all time. So the recording goes on. I think we maybe recorded for 35 minutes because we were having a blast. And so we record, it was probably 30 minutes. It probably had the limit on the ISDN line. Um, so we recorded all this stuff and they said, well, that was great. We're going to have trouble picking out what to do. And this was on the Thursday and Saturday morning, you know, I tune in to listen to this thing thinking, when's my little three minute segment coming on? But it gets round to like just after quarter to nine and on I come. 
This is one of those famous no news days. Time on from quarter to nine till just before the news at nine o'clock. I mean, it doesn't get any better. This is my audition going no well. No news day, perfect. So, I mean, and they just played the whole thing. And apparently they were just inundated with, who is this guy? Love his voice. That was the main thing. I don't know whether they understood anything, but love his accent. right? So, yeah. And they loved the fact that Scott and I had this banter. And so right after that, they said, you're going to be a regular. We'll have you on. And so from then on, I started doing things. And then eventually, uh, I actually started recording them then. I was actually living in the East Bay. I started recording at KPFA, tiny little studio, which was close to where I lived. Um, and the receptionist at KPFA would say, oh, it's the math guy. <laughs> so I'm talking to the producer of Weekend Edition in Washington one time. And he says, and I said, by the way, I've got a name here. I am the math guy. He said, funny you should say that. We put your segment on our, on our board as math guy. No Keith so Devlin. Said, no, it's math the math guy. guy. From then on, it's been the math guy. <laughs> so none of it was planned. And it was all because Scott and I just had a rapport. And it was only many years later when I was in Washington that I met him and went into the studio. And we, we became good friends. I mean, we really are good friends. But it's uh, uh, it was all just through the voice. Now, one thing I want to thank you for, Keith, is I was so surprised in your book to find a ribbon marker. Isn't that wonderful? I don't think in all the 20-plus years of Tech Nation that we've ever had a book come in with a ribbon marker. <laughs> Where did that come okay. from? That, that has to my, be a story. That is my wonderful editor at Princeton University Press, Vicki Cairn, who I've known for years. Uh, I've spent years uh, publishing books, and, and, and I've known Vicky for years. I was thinking, I'll have to do one with Princeton one time. We'll do one with Princeton. And then two years ago, I was a visiting professor at Princeton. She, was, she actually took a class I was giving. As a, she audited a class. And at that point, I know I was totally obliged. I said, I can't possibly not go to, to, to Vicky with my next one. Uh, and she did two things. First of all, she did more than two things. First of all, you know, this is based on a diary that I kept over many years researching Leonardo. Um, I took all of the notes and decided after the event that I, and I just kept the notes as sort of like a research lab book because I was doing this history thing. And I, I looked at these, I thought, there's an interesting story. There's several interesting stories. But how do you tell a story with that? Um, my agent here in San Francisco, Ted Weinstein, gave me a lot of help. Between us, we sort of created a storyline. We created some theme. Didn't quite work. Eventually, we sent it to, to Vicky at Princeton. And she said, here's how to turn this into a book that people will just read and it tell a story. So she was the one that came through and she said various things. She said, first of all, we need a cover that reflects the fact that it's a it, it's a diary. And the real the real diary was just sort of, you know, loose leaf binders and ring binders and bits of paper that I had. It was kind of messy, but right. then it was a folder. So she said and it we'll doesn't have it. a paper flap yeah, on yeah. the outside. It's right. really like we'll a diary. We designed it to look like a diary. And she said if we can put it in the budget and get approval, we're going to have a ribbon just like a diary would have. Uh, I didn't know she'd got it until it was about to be published. She says, I got the permission to put the down. I think it's wonderful. It's uh, fantastic. You can see I, how I far I've it. got through mine. There you go. There you go. I move it around. I just yeah. like having the ribbon. It's I have a wonderful. book with a ribbon. Yeah. Look. Yeah, you know, Look the sad thing is the diary I used didn't have a ribbon. It was just a, mostly these, these ring binder things with little, with, with small pages. Same size, but. Well, there, there's so many parts to this book. I mean, I called it uh, before the show. I called it your quest. You know, it's this a quest, form quest yeah. to, to find this. And you were not alone in these quests. There were different aspects 
of this. Yale finance professor yeah. William Gutzman, yeah. uh, he did an analysis to link modern yeah. finance back to this Libra Bacci, um, the University of Siena mathematics historian, yeah. Professor Raffaella Franchi, or yeah. Franchi. I think it's Franchi. But, Franchi. Uh, she hasn't um, corrected me if I'm wrong. Right. Um, <laughs> she determined that the publication um, actually triggered this arithmetic and mathematical revolution in Florence. It's like, oh, and you can finally get that picture when you were talking earlier about, oh, look at these numbers. It's like, it would totally change business. Oh, yeah. It Completely. was huge. Completely. Yeah, within a few decades. The book appears in 1202. In the next few decades, coming out of that one little area around Pisa and Florence, and to some extent Siena, but it was really Pisa and Florence, You've got modern banking, you've got insurance, you've got double-entry bookkeeping, you've got the organisation of large-scale trading empires, you've got the modern financial world. As William Gertzman, that Yale finance professor, pointed out as well, you have the beginnings of all of the modern financial, the, 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 the monetary systems, you know, the sort of derivatives and the, the exchange, all of that, you find it in Libra Abaci, and it all happened. The mathematics was there. And the time was right. In, the, in, a, in a sense, it, everything, everything comes of its time. All of the material on arithmetic had been written in a book in 9th century Baghdad by a mathematician called Al-Khwarizmi, who gives us the modern word algorithm. Uh, he also gives us the modern word algebra, because one of the things that Al-Khwarizmi did, and, and, and this was actually mostly the traders, algebra wasn't... You know, the, the bizarre thing is people today would say, kids today say, what's algebra good for? Algebra wasn't invented as mathematics. It was invented as a way of scaling up arithmetic. How do you do arithmetic at scale so you can trade lots of goods? You don't want to do the same calculation over and over again. You want to do the calculation will give you a formula for X and you can plug X in. So modern algebra was created in 9th century Baghdad to make arithmetic more efficient. In 9th century Baghdad, that means we have modern arithmetic, we have modern algebra. Why didn't the world change then? Because it wasn't ready for it. People were still trading camel to camel. It wasn't big. It was only when you have large numbers of people in cities trading and trading at a distance through boats going around the Mediterranean that the environment is right for something as powerful as Hindu-Arabic arithmetic to take over. Because the other thing that Hindu-Arabic arithmetic gives you that I didn't mention before was it democratises mathematics. Prior to that system, you needed to have the money to pay someone to do the finger calculations or to do the abacus board calculations. Hindu-Arabic arithmetic is so simple that a child can learn it, and we all learn it as children, you learn the rules. You then have at your fingertips and in your mind and on your paper in front of you, you have the ability to do all of the arithmetic to run a business. So that capacity, when it became available in Europe at the beginning of the 13th century, and in my book I, I compare Europe in the 13th century, I actually compare Pisa and Florence in the 13th century to Palo Alto and Silicon Valley today because it's the same thing. You have a concentration where there's an environment, you have a need, you have the support, you have all of the people and everyone can do it. You know, Just as anyone can start up a company in Silicon Valley, I'm one of them, one of the many that have done that, 13th century Italy, you could start up as a trader and it didn't. there was no outlay cost. You just had to get a copy of this manuscript. The way they got the information was they got a copy of the manuscript, Libra Abaci, whatever it was, actually one of the derivatives of Libra Abaci. You'd get a copy of that manuscript. You'd make your own copy by hand without worrying about understanding it, just a slavish copy. 
you would take it home and then you would study it. So almost all of the, the books that have been preserved, the handwritten manuscripts, have the same feature, a very carefully copied text annotated everywhere with scribbles and calculations. Their own business. They were doing the most <laughs> How many stuff. sheep? Yeah, yeah. How many this? How That's many exactly that? what they did. Uh, it was all by example, template examples, and hundreds and hundreds, actually would have been thousands of people, immediately got hold of that because that was the key to a successful financial career. That was a way you could feed your family. It was very fast, but it only happened because the environment was right for it. Now, you very nicely provide an appendix, which is a guide to its chapters. Yeah. This book, first published in 1202, I guess we don't have any copies of it that we know. Uh, We We have have the 1228 update. Right, yeah. And that was written in... Latin. That, that, almost certainly the first one was written in Latin. We, we, there's probably one book that Leonardo wrote in, in everyday Italian, vernacular Italian. But yes, Latin was the language which everything was written in. Uh, it had actually been trans... Everything had, everything had started down with the Indians and the Greeks, and it was then translated into Arabic, then from Arabic into Latin. A lot of it in northern Spain was the translations done. Uh, and then it was all brought to Europe in, in the Latin manuscripts. Uh, so Libro of Archie is an enormous, difficult book to read. It's, it's, it's heavy-duty... Um, one of the things that Leonardo did, and this is one of the puzzles that was behind the history, was, um, and let me just answer the question you made about the 1228 version of the book. He writes the first version of Libra Barci in 1202. That makes him famous. He's a celebrity in Italy from then on. He's invited to the court of Emperor, Emperor Frederick II. Uh, he's a celebrity, big famous guy. The city of Pisa gives him a, a, a pension. He's, he's got some title, a titular appointment at the city. So he's a big shot in his, in his life. Uh, and at the end of it, at the suggestion of the emperor and various other people in the emperor's court, he writes a second, much enlarged version of Libra Barci. Uh, that appeared in 1228, still handwritten in Latin. He did something very unusual. At the beginning of that book, he writes a fairly lengthy explanation of who he is and why he writes it. Our only knowledge of Leonardo, the person, comes from that interruption he wrote himself. Why was he persuaded to do that? Why did he do that? Nobody did that. By then, he knew this was a big deal. He'd seen it in action. He almost certainly was teaching adults in in, in night schools and things. In the scope of this 26 years between the first and second edition, Huge amounts of things had happened. All of this commercial stuff, the banking, the insurance was coming out. By then, he knew he was a historical figure. He must have done. He was a smart guy. The one thing he must have realised soon after this thing began to take off was the only way of getting access to this material was to go and read his Libra Barci. It almost certainly wasn't as long and deep as his second later edition, but it was all written in Latin. So he, he makes reference in his books, and he wrote several other books besides Libra Barci. He wrote one on geometry, a couple on algebra. So he writes these other books. One of the things he keeps mentioning in these books is that he's written a shorter, easier version of Libra Barci. He sometimes call it a, he sometimes refers to it as a book in a smaller manner, or he sometimes says it's a book for merchants. Today we would call it arithmetic for dummies. He decides the world needs an arithmetic for dummies book, and he writes one. Within a few years of him dying, we don't know when he died, but within a few years of his death, hundreds and eventually thousands, we assume, of copies of that other book started to appear. And it was not from Libra Barci that people learned the mathematics. It was from this smaller book for merchants. At least that was what the assumption was. The problem was there was no copy found of Libra Bar- of this, this book for merchants. What we did have was 240 studied by scholars books known as abacus books 
these smaller books written in vernacular Italian, which were the ones that people learnt arithmetic from. So there were hundreds of those written, probably thousands of them written. They were all much the same. They were copied from each other. You can just tell by linguistic analysis. This was essentially copies of a copies of a copies of a book. The trouble was the original one wasn't found. It was 2002 when I was going to, to Pisa for the second time. I got to know this person, Raffaella Franchi, the world's greatest authority, in my, at least in my judgment, and I think it's a reasonable good judgment by now, in medieval mathematics, certainly one of a small number of medieval mathematics experts. In 2002, she makes what I regard as one of the discoveries of the century. She finds the earliest known copy of the lost book for merchants, it was so. It was actually written in 1290. It was so close to Leonardo. It was at most a copy of a copy, and so by extrapolating between the contents of that manuscript, it was it was found in a book in a in an archive in in Florence. By extrapolating between that that manuscript and Leonardo's different books, and seeing how the material could have got in, how it combines from the books, and then looking at all of the books that came afterwards, that book sitting in the Riccardiana Library in Florence, which I held in my hand for an amazing two hours at one point a few years ago, one of the high moments of my life, was the book, or one of the very small number of books, five or six books maybe, that gave rise to the Western world. And the bizarre thing is, because I had a Stanford Library card and I'd used that to get an Italian library card, I was able to sit there and hold this thing, you know. Um, Historians of the future won't have the same fun with thumb drives, I'm afraid. You won't even be able to read them. But to hold in your hands a manuscript written in the 13th century that was instrumental in starting the entire modern commercial financial world, to be and able to read it is staggering. And access is everything. Yeah. That material was translated into English and you were able to order it on Amazon. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I, that, another lucky break was just when I was starting this work. And I, I learned Latin at school in England, so I was reading Latin manuscripts, and I knew I would have to read a lot of Libra Barchi. This is 600 pages or sort of, actually 400 pages of manuscript. I knew that was going to be a hard task. I wasn't looking forward to it. But another stroke of luck, not only did I look out in that Franchi made this discovery, which was huge, a mathematician at Bucknell University had just finished a translation into English. Now, he sadly died uh, of cancer before the book, actually just after the book was finished, before it was published. I eventually went out to Bucknell, met his widow, talked about that history. But he spent many, the last several years of his life producing an English translation. And it was because of that translation that this Yale professor also was able to analyse the thing. There's nothing like having a translation if you want to really go into the details because it's just one step that's removed. Um, but yeah, you can read it today. Well, Keith, it's fantastic. There's lots more in the book. It was quite the quest. It's actually a good book to read if you just want to go on your own quest. First you do this, then you, oh, and then luck happens, and then that. Oh, but don't stop or you're going to get depressed. Oh, there's another lucky break. <laughs> it's a story. It's, it's an absolute a story. story. Yeah. It can happen for you. Pick your own topic. Uh, please come back. See us any anytime. You know we love you here. Love to. Love coming by. Okay. Thanks, Moira. My guest today is NPR math guy Keith Devlin. The book is Finding Fibonacci, the quest to rediscover the forgotten mathematical genius who changed the world. It's published by Princeton University Press. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation.
Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent for Tech Nation Health and founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. I thought we'd talk about prizing innovation. How do you take folks from across the whole innovation spectrum, or folks who aren't even innovators in their own mind, and bring them to address grand challenges? And I thought a good example of that would be the X Prize, something I've been an advisor to for several years. And just this last week, there was a new X Prize awarded to the winners of the the Tricorder medical competition. It's a $10 million prize. It was the Qualcomm Tricorder X Prize. Tricorder as in Star Trek Tricorder. Beam me up, Scotty, except those of you might remember uh, Doc McCoy. He'd wand a little device over the patient, and it could tell them that they were you know, had Raelian infections from some for the planet or they had <laughs> yeah. heart disease or cancer. The idea that in a, in a sort of handheld device could you sort of diagnose someone, which is what the medical tricorder did in science fiction, that inspired this idea to prize, could we make a real sort of medical tricorder? And we, we came up with this prize idea probably in 2010, um, the idea that technologies were coming together that could be in the hand of the consumer, the patient, the parent, that would enable you to do triage at home. Because from my experience working in a lot of emergency rooms, about half the people who come in didn't need to be there at all, and the other half should have come in a long time earlier. And you were always, what do you have at home today? Maybe a digital thermometer at most? So this this Tricorder X Prize was essentially, could you inspire teams to build a solution that was under five pounds, that could be portable, that could be used by anybody, not a trained clinician, to diagnose uh, the top 16 most common issues you might have at home, from pneumonia to urinary tract infection to, 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 uh, to heart attacks and beyond, and layer that with artificial intelligence and communication to enable someone to understand and be more proactive about making a diagnosis and bring them to the medical care anywhere on the planet when they might need it. And what was interesting about this X Prize is it stimulated several hundred teams to enter this competition. And several hundred. Yep. Uh, they, you know, it starts off with a lot of people getting excited, forming teams, many of whom were outside of the traditional medical realm or collaborated with physicians, nurses, doctors, technologists. And just last week, um, you can see on xprize.org or uh, tricorder.xprize.org, learn about the winners. The winning team was a family of brothers and a sister. Uh, some of them were physicians and engineers and, and biotechnologists who developed a platform that, that sold about 70% of the 16. The second place team had actually sold the other uh, six or seven. Together, they actually reached all those metrics. And the XPRIZE is also supported by groups like the FDA. So these technologies could not just be developed, but move through the regulatory process. And the next steps of the prize are to support these teams to bring them to our pockets and that you could buy at a Best Buy or a Lowe's or on Amazon so that you're not worried, is that funny chest pain uh, indigestion or it might be a heart attack? Or does my kid have uh, belly pain? Is that a urinary tract infection or just uh, just something they ate? A chocolate Easter egg. <laughs> right. So, uh, and so this is one example of, of several X prizes that have emerged. Um, and just to frame what an XPRIZE is, some of your listeners might remember, I think it was uh, about 12 years ago, the first XPRIZE was run. It was the Ansari XPRIZE. Uh, XPRIZE was started by my friend, uh, Dr. Peter Diamandis, who you've had on the show. The first XPRIZE was to get a rocket into space twice within a month period, uh, not done by the government. You know, it used to be NASA who could do these things. And a bunch of teams entered this competition. Again, a $10 million prize. I think well over $100 million were spent competing for this prize. And uh, Bert Rutan and his team at Scale Composites were the were the winners, as you might recall, made a lot of press, and has now catalyzed a lot of the commercial spaceflight industry, from X Prize to what uh, the folks uh, from Jeff Bezos, Jeff Bezos, the Amazon founder, are doing. So a prize is trying to do something audacious, but achievable, and catalyze something that needs to be done that might not happen otherwise. 
Well, you know, it's interesting when you say, well, why can't the private sector do it? The private sector could do it, could do all kinds mm -hmm. of things. But unless they see that they can do it and get a return on investment in a reasonable amount of time, they're not going to just throw resources at it. Sure, there might be misaligned incentives. You know, could another X Prize that's going on right now is the Google Lunar X Prize for the first teams that are not again government based to get a robot on the moon and send back pictures and do some interesting elements that catalyzes maybe new technologies and businesses on the moon that traditional industries might not go after if they're quarter to quarter and have to report to Wall Street. It also brings new minds. We have, you know, two billion, three billion people on the planet who have access to internet and data on their smartphone that only presidents used to have twenty years ago. And the next couple of years, I think two or three billion more people will coming on with Google Loon and projects like Facebook satellites are going to open up folks who could be participants in prizes and competitions that wouldn't have access otherwise. And a lot of the innovation invention doesn't have to be invented here. Most of the smartest people in the world don't work for you or at one company. <laughs> yeah. Since nobody works for me, yeah, that's a very <laughs> – that, that Venn diagram we can, we can draw. Now, it can be tricky to design such a prize. I mean, it has to be so far out that it's going to move the innovation frontier. But it can't be so far you can't get there. It needs to be yeah, close enough but not something people are working on anyway. So you're trying to solve for things that the market isn't already addressing, but also not complete science fiction. So – you know, until five or six years ago, a medical tricorder may have been science fiction, but now our smartphones with computing and cheap sensors and AI are all converging. And you can do smart things and bring folks from different worlds together to solve a problem like making an actual quote-unquote medical tricorder. Um, so, for example, with the rocket one, the Ansari X Prize, initially it was going to be 100 miles the rocket had to get and back. Uh, they lowered it to 100 kilometers because it, it was a little more uh, – still audacious but a little more achievable. So it's tricky to set something that folks can go after that's uh, – within the realm of reality and physics. Another example that was probably misaligned was a prize to reward uh, low-cost genomic sequencing. And that was a, a genomics X prize, but the cost or the speed and the lowering price of sequencing a whole genome dropped at twice the rate of Moore's Law. It was well surpassing the target of this X prize. So it's a really tricky process. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. And once a year, we get together with what's called Visioneers at X prize and uh, bring some amazing folks from Dean Kamen to Ratan Tata, the chairman of Qualcomm. It's an amazing group that comes together to look at creating new prizes. Last year, I was heading up one of the new nine teams to propose a new X prize idea. Um, and we looked at cancer. So I'm trained as a pediatric oncologist. There's lots of folks, people and companies and academics worked on treating cancer, but not a lot of focus on how do we prevent it? You know, millions of people die, thousands a day of cancer deaths. It would have been preventable if it was picked up at stage zero or stage one, if it was early lung cancer or, or um, pancreatic or... or early or, or, any or, cancer. Right. And so what we haven't had any new diagnostic engines really uh, come out. We're still stuck with mammography and colonoscopy. Many folks don't get those for issues of discomfort or access or cost. So we're going to prize the ability uh, to make a new cancer X prize to globalize and democratize cancer screening. What if for under $24 and under 24 hours from Tennessee to Tanzania, you could be screened for cancers you're at risk for uh, as easy as a urine dipstick for pregnancy? Now, that's sort of a bit of a vision. And an X prize doesn't state the solution, it's it's slating the problem. So people can go at it from many different ways. It may be blood-based biomarkers. It could be something you pick up in the urine. It could be an, a low-cost ultrasound or a platform of tools. But we're going to catalyze that prize. We'll hopefully launch it in early 2018. And we call it sort of the all-in prize. It's not going to be named the Moira Gunn Cancer Prize. It hopefully can be crowdsourced both from large companies and individuals, but everyone might be a contribute. And we're going to make a matchmaking matchmaking process so anyone in the world could find a team and join and contribute in, in certain ways. Oh, so, so you could join a team that was 
assembling, if right. you will, even though you don't know these people, but you have something to bring. Right. You may be an AI expert or a college sophomore who's a big data scientist or uh, – uh, someone who lives in Timbuktu who may be good at 3D printing. With time printing. on their hands. <laughs> or time or knowledge or just insights because many of the best things happening in healthcare come from folks who have insights from other worlds. Uh, they may be, you know, um, experts in in, uh, in process engineering for an aircraft plant, but that same process could come to making cheaper medical devices. Or uh, someone who's doing AI machine learning for video games could apply that to uh, looking at cancer cells underneath uh, a camera. Um so that's this Cancer XPRIZE. Uh, we'd love folks to sort of get involved as we spool this up. If you go to xprize.org slash cancer, you can see a little information, put your name in, and hopefully as the prize evolves, contribute in a variety of different ways. So whether you're in Timbuktu or Tennessee, you're going to be putting in the kinds of things you could contribute, match them up. How does that work? We're going to create a, uh, almost a match.com for folks who want to join teams and then support those teams. So it's not like here's a $10 million prize, go solve cancer. We're going to provide support from folks like the FDA or maybe large companies who can provide storage in the cloud like Amazon or uh, hopefully companies like Illumina might support with sequencing data if you need it or NIH and others. So we want to really catalyze innovation, starting with cancer, but maybe other fields when you put a prize out there, catalyze folks to solve it. Uh, things that aren't being, you know, there are efforts in the Bay Area, companies like Grail and Gardent uh, Technologies, which are working at blood-based diagnostics and uh, for cancer. But as I understand it from talking to some of those folks, those are still going to be oh, at least several hundred dollars to thousands of dollars per test. We want, again, bring uh, the ability to, to screen for, let's say, lung cancer. It might be from breath. It might be from uh, a, a cheap handhold ultrasound. It may be other forms. We want to bring that democratized cancer screening around the world to save lives and bring new thinking into that space. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I talk to so many different doctors and researchers, and so many times they say they can see things in the eye. Sure. Well, that's another great diagnostic area. What's interesting is it's, you know, you've been to medical visits where they try and look at the back of your retina, and that's sometimes you get a good little peek and you see how the blood vessels look. That can be a clue to hypertension or in diabetics, diabetic retinopathy. And now with machine learning, easy ways with a smartphone attachment to take a picture of the black of the eye and now apply machine learning and other image diagnostics, you can tell um, where someone is in diabetic retinopathy, pick up um, signs of even dementia. So it turns out with um, Alzheimer's disease, there may be uh, signs of those plaques that you get in the brain in the retina. So that might be a screening approach. And uh, what Google DeepMind and others are doing is looking at those scans. It can really prognosticate where someone going with their health risks and therapy. Well, Daniel, thank you so much. See you next time. Thanks, Moira. Dr. Daniel Kraft is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine and chair for medicine at Singularity University. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.